Okay, we are going to wrap up our study in Paul's letters to the Thessalonians today. We'll be in 2 Thessalonians 3, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Have you ever had to uh, deal with termites? Anybody? No? A little bit? No fun. Right? It's kind of hard for me to imagine Noah letting them on the ark. Um, like, what was going through his head at the time, you know? Like, um, God, yeah, about these little bugs that hide in the wood as they eat it. You know, I don't know. I learned this week that a single termite can regularly uh, eat up to 3% of its own body weight every day, and that a small colony of around 60,000 can go through an entire 2x4 in just a few months. That's a small colony. Uh, not to mention that a queen lives around 15 to 25 years and lays eggs about every 15 seconds. Termites are not the kind of problem that just go away, right? It's not how that works. In fact, they've been around since the time of the dinosaurs. Uh, they're incredibly destructive and they're super difficult to detect at first. And typically, when they have done enough damage to be detected, it can cost uh, quite a bit to eliminate and restore whatever has been damaged, if it can be restored at all. In America alone, termites cost over $5 billion a year. And I really wonder if Noah knew about this, would he still have let them on the boat, right? As if mosquitoes, flies, and wasps weren't bad enough. Like, we have to have termites, too. Uh, and I know y'all must be wondering what termites have to do with Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, and that's a fair question. Um, <laughs> I think as we dig into our text this morning, it will start to make more sense. Because the church in our time seems to sort of have an infestation. A hidden nest that is hard to detect and is doing great damage to the credibility of the church and our testimony concerning the gospel. And we need to make sure that we look for the signs of this infestation in our own hearts and minds so that we don't become a breeding ground for this kind of infiltration and deterioration. So follow along with me, if you will, as we read, beginning in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from the brother who is walking in idleness, and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. 
It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, so as he began to wrap up this letter, uh, Paul asked for prayer. He specifically asked that they pray for the word of the Lord to speed ahead and be honored that they would be delivered uh, and that they would be delivered from wicked and evil men. Now in context, both of these requests make perfect sense. At the time, Paul and his team were in Corinth. Uh, they were attempting to establish the church there and continue to face opposition just as they had in Thessalonica. And throughout his letters, Paul seems to have hoped that the believers he was writing to would support his ministry beyond their own towns and cities, that they would catch uh, his vision of this sort of interconnected web of faith stretching across the entire Mediterranean world from Jerusalem all the way to what we know as the Strait of Gibraltar, and they, they called it the Pillars of Hercules at that time. Uh, he knew they would consistently face opposition and be treated terribly. But he hoped to be delivered from those who would commit such acts against him and his team so that he could go on spreading the gospel. It's a little strange, then, that he would say, not all have faith. When it is clear that the vast majority of people did not share in faith that he was professing. Well, the Greek, I think, makes this a little bit more clear. Um, it reads, ou gar panton hepistos, if I said that right. And the best reading of that in, in sort of our language is, not all are of the faith, right? So it's a little bit different, but it makes a, I think it makes a difference. Because what he was basically doing is referring to those who are actually somehow a part of the group of believers. They were connected, they were uh, involved in what was going on. And he was warning the Thessalonians from his own experience that just because someone is part of the group doesn't mean they are invested in the group and what the group is all about. And Paul would go on to echo this concept in Romans 9-6, writing that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. To bring this forward into our time, we might say not everyone who shows up to church is a believer. Now, I don't think Paul intended for us to go around pointing fingers and accusing each other of lacking faith. I don't think that's what this was about. I think it was just a simple warning, uh, as if he were saying, be ready. 
you should just know that you're going to face opposition in every direction. That even those who appear on the surface to be a part of what the church is doing aren't necessarily a part of what the church is doing, right? Some might end up being more of a hindrance to the kingdom calling. Still, Paul seemed convinced that the Lord would be faithful to those who would stand firm in the faith, as we said a week ago. Those who would lean into the change that the Holy Spirit wanted to bring about in them. Which means that before we go any further in this passage, we need to ask ourselves if that's us. Are we willing to give the Holy Spirit control? Are we open to whatever changes that may lead to in our lives? Or are we part of the church without really being invested? Simply along for the ride? Maybe even more of a deterrent to the spread of the gospel than anything else. Now, Paul is sure that the Lord would establish and guard those who were open to the Holy Spirit and willing to be changed. That's what he said. He trusted that the Lord would move these believers into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Which brings us back to the idea of standing firm in the faith that we've mentioned over and over. Not leaving or being drawn away by some distraction, but continuing to lean into the work of the Holy Spirit. And in a very real sense, this means we will never be stationary. We will always be growing and growth can be painful. I can still vividly remember each of my children uh, waking me up in the night because their legs were sore. Usually it was right behind the knees, right? Um, and we would rub them and put Icy Hot or whatever on them, Tiger Balm. Uh, but ultimately we couldn't stop it from happening because they were growing pains. As their bodies grew, their muscles ached. That's just how it worked. And it's not terribly different with us. The growth we go through isn't always pleasant. It can be painful, which is probably why so many people choose to ignore that aspect of their faith. They walk down an aisle and they get dumped and that's as far as they ever make it into the kingdom. Like someone walking into a gym full of weights and workout machines and just sort of standing at the door, never really getting the whole experience. There are folks who have been standing at the door of the kingdom for their entire lives, never really moving in, never really laying down their old way for the new way of Jesus and his kingdom. Is this us? We might think it couldn't be us, but then again, are we still changing? Still moving forward, still growing in the Lord, living into our calling. Are we full of the love of God? Like what Paul said here. Are we full of the patience and endurance of Christ? Are we consistently giving the Holy Spirit the reins to our lives and allowing our darkness to be flushed out? Or are we holding on to our old ways, still wanting to control things ourselves, living just inside the doors of this magnificent kingdom that God is building? 
Moving into verses 6 through 12, which is the main chunk of this final chapter, Paul addressed people who were part of the group of believers without really being part of it at all. He began by commanding the believers to avoid any brother who walked in idleness. What immediately stands out here is that Paul used the term brother. It was clearly referring to other believers when he mentioned avoiding those who walked in idleness. Several weeks ago, we talked about idleness in terms of someone or something that is not doing what they should be doing. We saw that in context, Paul clearly meant anyone who wasn't immersed in the way of the kingdom of God, anyone who had been shown the way of Jesus and this new kingdom, but had just sort of put it in neutral. In terms of the larger picture Paul was painting of the kingdom of God, this meant anyone who thought that the imminent return of Jesus meant they didn't have to actually do anything. Basically, Paul was warning them that coasting was out of order. It didn't fit with the kingdom work ethic that he was trying to espouse. Not that salvation is a matter of work. We know better. We are saved through the work of Jesus for the sake of the work of the kingdom. Just as Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.10, where he said, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And here, Paul echoed that same idea, warning the believers to avoid such people. This time, instead of describing these people in detail, Paul went the other direction, pointing out how he and his team worked while they were among the Thessalonians. And he clarified that even though they had the right as God's appointed messengers to receive provisions from the people, they had worked anyway in order to set the example for what it looked like to be a part of God's kingdom. Paul didn't want idleness to spread among the believers. Even though they all very much believed that Jesus would return at any moment, sort of like most of us do, he wanted them living each day as faithful servants of the Lord, fully immersed in the work of the kingdom. He seems to have thought that such idleness would be contagious in their group that those who were idle would sort of infect the others and they would all become ineffective in terms of the work of the kingdom. And even today, 2,000 years later, we have the same issue. There are far too many people in the church who believe Jesus could return at any moment and have pretty much put it in park until he does. But that's not how the kingdom operates. Paul didn't want believers getting off track. There was work to do. There were still people who needed to hear the gospel. And this is still true today. We live in a town full of people who need to know the love and forgiveness and healing Jesus offers. And not a single one of us can afford to be idle. Not only do we have a calling from the Lord, we are also surrounded by people who are hurting and in desperate need of what can only be found in Jesus. If we are not about the work of the kingdom, 
We are basically admitting that they can suffer and go to hell because we just don't care enough. It's not that I think any of us have that mindset, but what do our actions reveal? Are we diligently working together, finding ways to meet the needs of people in this town so that we have earned the right to talk to them about Jesus? Or are we sort of twiddling our thumbs and passing the time until Jesus returns? In verse 10, Paul reminded them that when he was with them, he established a ground rule that anyone not willing to work would not eat either. And this might sound harsh, especially given our calling by Jesus himself to feed the hungry and the assurance that when we do, it's as if we are feeding him. Paul was making a point here. He wasn't saying that believers shouldn't care for others or that believers could overlook certain folks. He wasn't justifying believers ignoring people with actual needs. He was referring to believers that could be a part of the work but chose not to. He was trying to get them to understand that they were all in this together. That those who worked together grew together. And that those who skipped the work only to show up at the meal, they weren't really on the same mission. And in that day and time, sharing a meal together, that was an incredibly important thing. It still is, I think. It meant you belonged, were part of something. It was where conversations were had and, and bonds were grown between family and friends. It's also entirely possible that Paul was referring to the Lord's Supper when he said this. And since we know that he was talking about other believers by his use of the term brother in verse 6, he could have meant that those unwilling to be a part of the work of the kingdom were also not a part of sharing in the communion meal. It's as if Paul was basically asking if they aren't willing to be a part of the work of the kingdom, should they be a part of sharing in the celebration of the kingdom? If a person is able to do what needs to be done but is unwilling to do it, can they still be reliable in any other way? Can they really be trusted? And if we can't trust each other, how can we possibly work together toward our gospel calling? I think this is why Paul focused on this before closing his letter. And it's why he took such a strong stance against it. In verse 11, Paul called these people busybodies. The Greek word he used there, if I can say it right, is peri or gadzomai. That's a tough one. Um, it's a compound word, though, made up of the prefix peri, which kinds of mean, it means all around, like on the outside of, all around. Uh, and then ergazomai, which means to work. In other words, it means to work all around. But the connotation is actually of someone who meddles, someone who's meddling, someone who is always sticking their nose where they don't belong, someone who fixates on what others are doing instead of what they should be doing. Which means busybody is a pretty good translation here. There's also the implication that this could describe a gossip as well. Uh, someone who is into everyone else's business. 
And he uses whatever information they can get as a means of gaining uh, attention. Or maybe even someone who uses that information as a means of control. A means of gaining some measure of power over others. And as easy as it might be for us to sit here and think of other people we know who might fit this description, the real question we have to ask ourselves today is how do we fit that description? Are there some bad habits that we have picked up along the way? Have we gotten off track? Have we taken a step back from the real work of the kingdom in favor of making other people's business our own? Do we understand that this kind of thing can destroy our ability to share the gospel? That people looking at who we are will be turned off if any of us act that way. Because aren't we ourselves turned off when others act that way? Think of uh, all the ways a seemingly harmless busybody actually eats away at the credibility of a church. Like a termite that can't be seen, but the damage is real, and it's often irreversible. People understandably have a hard time trusting Christians for this very reason. They see how this infestation has taken hold and how much damage it has done over time, and they just want nothing to do with it. And who can really blame them? Which is why, if we want to have an impact in this place, we have to exterminate the busybody bug mindset that is inside of each one of us. That inclination to concern ourselves with things that really aren't our business. The desire to sit in the back and let everyone else do the work for us. Paul clearly wanted to make sure the work of the kingdom continued to grow in Thessalonica. And he knew that having idle folks around would cause serious problems. He went on to tell them in verse 12 that if anyone was being a busybody, they should basically repent and work quietly, earning their own living and being a positive and productive member of the group. That's the implication there. And if we are interested in being an active part of what the Lord wants to do in this place, then why are we here? Can we really worship the Lord if we are not willing to carry out His will? These are all serious questions that we need to consider because even though the Holy Spirit is active within every believer to empower us to do the work of the kingdom that we've been called to do, it can still be exhausting. There are plenty of people in the church who seem to have just given up. They've reached a point where they feel like just showing up on Sunday is enough. Or that Sunday worship is all there is. And nothing could be further from the truth. Sunday is when the people of God who have spent the week working until they are worn out can gather and be recharged by entering into worship together. Celebrating all the Lord has done during the week. If someone hasn't taken part in that, 
If someone has spent the week sticking their nose in everyone else's business and not quietly doing their own, or if someone has refused to invest in the work of the kingdom alongside everyone else, what is it they have to celebrate in the Lord? How is refusing to join in the work of the kingdom something that will lead to worship? And why would they even want to join in the communion of the saints? It doesn't make any sense. And this is part of the problem. The church has plenty of people who fit this description. They claim to be a part of the community of faith, but then all they end up doing is giving the community of faith a bad name because they are not following the way of Jesus. Based on what Paul said here as he finished his thought, we are not supposed to grow weary in doing good. As exhausting as it is, as much work and effort as it takes, and if we know someone who fits the description of a busybody or gossip, if we've already dealt with our own personal stuff, and we see someone else in that way, we're supposed to warn them. Not as an enemy, not as the you better watch out sort of thing, but as a brother or sister in the faith. We should be encouraging them to join us in the work of the kingdom. Inviting them to meet us as we take part in the various opportunities that present themselves right here in our own backyard. And the only way to do that is to build relationships with the people where we live. Not just the church folk, everyone. Because there's absolutely no way to meet people's needs unless we know the people and their needs. So are we interested in that? Is that what we want to be about? Are we ready to invest ourselves in the welfare of this place? <coughs> Do we want to see people come to know Jesus and become part of his kingdom by joining us in our effort to make it a reality here in Marathon? Because if so, there's plenty to be done. We pray with you.